Welcome to Good Morning, the podcast on a mission to normalize grief and loss through candid conversations and shared experiences. Hosted by me, Sally Douglas, and me, Imogen Khan. We unfortunately joined the club that nobody wants to be part of when we both lost our mums unexpectedly. This podcast aims to create a space to openly discuss what grief is like and provide comfort for those who might be going through a similar experience. We'll shed light on an often taboo subject with honesty, hope and a little bit of humour. October is International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month and today we have the honour of speaking with Priyanka Saha, mum to Lillian Jasper and founder of the Lily Calvert Foundation which is a legacy that was established in memory of her lovely daughter Lily, who passed away at ten and a half months old due to an incurable brain condition known as Miller-Dika syndrome. The Incredible Foundation aims to raise awareness and support for paediatric palliative care as well as to encourage conversations to help break the taboo around grief and child loss. Priyanka will share her story of being faced with every mother's worst nightmare and how she gracefully embraced the new version of herself after dealing with the unimaginable loss of her baby girl, Lily. I know I speak on behalf of Sal and I and probably everybody else out there, Priyanka, who hasn't had any experience with this type of loss. It can be an uncomfortable and sensitive topic to approach and we would absolutely love for you to help educate us and our listeners on what we can do to try and help break that as Mm. it's such an important issue. And I think because of the way we do have the tendency as a society to kind of avoid it, I imagine it can be quite isolating for anyone going through it. So thank you for coming on the show. And I know this is a matter very close to your heart. And I think we will all really benefit from hearing your story. Well, thanks for having me tonight. I'm really, really happy to be here and to talk about Lily and hopefully help some people out there who might be going through a similar thing or who might have a friend or a family member and just struggling to know what to say. I think that's the thing with something like baby loss. People sometimes don't know what to say. And I know that on your sort of Instagram channel, you do talk quite openly about how to approach the subject and you're very open and honest about your experience with the grief and the loss that you felt which I think is is so so important. Yeah and I think one of the things that I realized after going through losing my child was how my whole life I had been ignoring that I'd ignored grief and if I knew someone who had lost a child or lost you know somebody close to them I didn't know what to say so I'd I definitely said nothing and then it happened to me and I realized and I was like oh my goodness saying nothing is the worst and the most uncomfortable thing that you can do from my perspective to someone who has has lost somebody that they love and kind of having that moment of realizing how awful it was when people didn't acknowledge it or people skipped over it or as though nothing had happened made me realize we need to change this in society death happens to everybody at some point and it's bizarre that this thing that happens to all of us is so hushed and so so hidden. So that kind of, I think, really drives me to open it up and to start to talk about it and to help other people know that they're not alone in, in these feelings. It's incredible what you're doing, Priyanka. It's wonderful. And, you know, you're exactly right. No one is exempt from grief. It is universal. We all go through it at some stage, yet it, it is a taboo topic that people don't really talk about and 
like you say, unless you go through it, I think you don't really understand the magnitude of of how it feels until you've experienced a loss. We certainly found that when we lost our mums. Mm. And like you say, yeah, it's hard to know what to say. But then when you are in it yourself, you're like, this really needs to be something yeah. that we talk about more. Yeah, there's mm. no manual for this. You know, there's no... There's nothing to tell us how we approach these really uncomfortable subjects. So we just freeze up and avoid it. And it's like it doesn't help anybody. And, you know, when you lose someone so close to you and especially a child, it's like if it's not acknowledged, it's just really difficult. Yeah. And I think, well, firstly, I'm so sorry that you both lost your mothers last year, was it? Sally was last year and then um, mine was this year in February. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's not fair. Thank it's you. really not fair. It's not bloody um, fair, is it? <laughs> and there's nothing that can make it okay. Ultimately, yeah. I think you know it, it really sucks, and I wish it, I wish that we didn't have to do this podcast. But I wish that death didn't happen, and that we could just live in that blissful bubble. I know mm. I often say that I think I lived a pretty charmed existence until this happened to me, and I think I had optimism bias in that this will never happen to me. It happens to other people. So yeah, it's not until it happens to you where you're like, oh shit, I'm yeah, like the that statistics now. Yeah. That's right. So I think, and you're absolutely right, there is an unspoken expectation that we should just stop talking about it at a certain point. And I feel that because often people aren't equipped, just like I wasn't equipped, they don't know what to say or what the right thing to say is. There's almost a pressure that we put on people to stop talking about it. Mm. And and then that's sort of interpreted as like there's something wrong with you if you're still talking about yes. it. And yeah, it's like almost like you're not grieving properly if you're still talking about it in, you know, a few months' time. It's like I think we get about two weeks is the social mm-hmm. norm, isn't it? And then it's like after that two weeks, it's like, all right, have you not moved on yet? It's like, no, I'm still yeah. grieving. It's still a, a huge part of my life and it always will be. So you can't just move on from it, I think. That's, that's right. And and I'm really big on the fact that I actually think the opposite is true. Being able to talk about it helps you to process and accept that you've lost someone and it, it also helps you keep their memory alive. But I think the truth is that talking about it helps us to heal, for want of a better word. So stifling it actively makes it worse. You're really right. It's therapy in itself, isn't it? Being able to talk through what's happened and share those memories as well, keep those memories alive. And to say their name, I think. I mean, I at the very beginning, and I, I, you you would probably be going through it too, I imagine, losing a mother's like you want to talk about them. You want to talk about those good times and those memories because we want to keep their, their faces and their names and their person alive to us. So... We don't want to forget about them and pretend they didn't exist. And it is amazing to me that in the year 2020, we still see this attitude commonly within society that it's akin to a mental illness if you're still talking about the person you love a few months after you lost them. Yeah, like there's something wrong with you. Like mm. you should have moved on. That's right. And I and I think, you know, the mission, if anything, is we talk about them to remember them and we talk about them, and I've said this before, um, publicly, we talk about them because in the year 2020, we must recognise that it's healthy to do so and that it's not a mental illness. Grief is not a mental illness. It can, of course, lead to a mental illness at certain times in people's lives. It could be a trigger. But on the whole, grief is grief and it is perfectly healthy. The more sort of research I've done as well, it's, I think, 
you know, there is no graduation from grief. I think it is something that we're going to feel for the rest of our lives. I think it will change depending on where we're at in our lives or how long it's been. But I think it's something that we'll always carry as well. So it's like, (laughs) how are we supposed to hide something that we're always going to feel like it's a part of us now? That's right. And I had a mother on my Instagram account come to me the other day I have lots of different conversations with mostly baby loss mums and she had just said to me like how do I do this how do I keep going this is awful and we were talking about that concept that it's going to last forever but it does change and there is a poem I'm not sure if you've seen it it's it's a wave it talks about grief as a wave and the ocean and that you start to in the beginning you're just bobbing around in the ocean desperately trying to stay afloat and then as time goes on you'll be in kind of peaceful waters and then suddenly a huge wave will come and smack you around the head and you're right back in it again and it doesn't matter how long past that time of initial grief when a wave hits you it takes you right back there so as time goes on you may become further and further away from it it doesn't happen as often but when it does happen there'll be triggers that just push you straight back into that space where you're just desperately trying to find a life raft you know it's not a perfect analogy of grief but it's a really good one to try and explain that it as time goes on it does change but it's still there that's so true the waves come but they're just a little bit further apart from each other but they when Mm -hmm. they do when they do come the waves of grief crashing down (laughs) yeah and I think we're still fairly I guess we're grief newbies you could call us you know it's only been it's been nine months for me and Mm. six months for him but I'm yeah definitely finding that I have good weeks and then I might have like a bad few days, but the, the time in between the feel, the bad days is becoming, you know, a little bit longer as time goes yeah. by. But yeah. I think that is, that poem is a really beautiful way to, to summarize what it's like. Priyanka, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your pregnancy and how you came to, to find out about Lily's condition? Sure. I had a normal pregnancy with Lily. Before I had Lily, I had a ectopic pregnancy, which was a really traumatic thing. It's a, it's where the pregnancy starts to develop in the wrong place. You can die. Like it's quite life threatening if it doesn't get diagnosed. And through a series of blunders, mine didn't get picked up until I was bleeding internally. So I had this really awful first pregnancy experience where I obviously lost the baby. It it happened around seven or eight weeks. And I also lost a fallopian tube because it, it ruptures. So that had to be removed. And after that, we moved to Melbourne shortly after and I had been advised that it might take longer, it might be more difficult and that the other fallopian tube might be blocked too. So there was a chance we would have to go down the IVF route. And then a few months later, I found out I was pregnant. So initially was really worried it would be another ectopic. If you've had one, you're more likely to have another. And we kind of got past that. It was all clear. The baby was looking good. And then the rest of the pregnancy up until 36 weeks was incredibly normal. I did all of the normal tests. I didn't skip any testing. We did the 12-week test you do to look for basic chromosome issues like Down syndrome and things like that. We did all of those tests. We did the 20-week scan. Everything was great. And then at 36 weeks, my doctor sent me for a routine sizing scan. She, she sends all her patients for to see how the baby's growing and whether you might need a cesarean and that sort of thing. And that was when our whole world fell apart. The baby's 
brain wasn't clear on the ultrasound. They couldn't see the folds in the brain that they would expect to see at 36 weeks gestation. So things really went downhill from there and I did a, a MRI, a fetal MRI, and at 37 weeks we got told that it looked like the baby had a fatal condition and if the baby survived, we didn't know it was a she, but she, she would have severe disabilities, global development delay, seizures, and she wouldn't live for very long. So, you know, pretty catastrophic thing to take in at that time. And I don't even know how to explain the emotions. It was, I often say it was like all the colour drained out of the world. Yeah. And we had to get through the next few weeks until the baby arrived. And I think that time was the hardest time of my life. I um, the unknown, like you not knowing, you know. They're not so knowing. They had no and diagnosis not, at that point? You didn't um, really there know was a diagnosis, well. but it was a broad diagnosis and it wasn't specified as Milledeca syndrome. So it was yeah. known as, under the umbrella of listen carefully or listen carefully. And yeah, it wasn't known specifically. And we could have done, I think we could have done an amnio at that point, but we were kind of like, well, the baby's coming in the next few weeks. So let's just test it when the baby comes out. And we did decide, it was the hardest time we had to kind of process and work things out, but we decided in that time to just let nature take its course and to let the baby come as naturally as possible rather than to induce or have a cesarean or do something like that because we started to learn that there wasn't really anything we could do to change the ultimate outcome. So I think I went on to about 42 weeks, which was full on and then yeah we had Lily on the 7th of September 2016 she was born and it was really hard in that we had a plan we didn't know if the baby would survive so by that stage we had a plan that we wouldn't do a lot of invasive intervention we didn't want her to be in pain and to be you know put on tubes and machines and all sorts of things if it wasn't too kind of going to help if that makes sense yeah but she defied the odds so she was born that they didn't think she would survive the night and she did and the next day she really rallied and they had said we don't know if this baby will be able to swallow she might need to be tube fed and all all of these worst case scenarios and lo and behold she began to breastfeed two days later so it was it was amazing yeah, it was really amazing. A gorgeous girl. I've seen her on on your Instagram. She's just the cutest little thing. She was a beautiful girl. Yeah. And yeah, we got to have like a bit of normal time for we we went home. We had five days in hospital and we took her home and it was pretty amazing. And so how was that like? I know I've heard that when you lose a child, it's like you lose your future. So I guess, you know, knowing that like, did they give you a certain time frame of how long that she would live with this condition? Or? No. I think that was one of the hardest things. So, you know, I think I definitely had certain ideas about how I thought life with my brand new baby would be. And I was going to, you know, pop baby into the pram and be back at work in the next few months and wear my lycra to daycare, you know, drop the, drop the baby off and off I go to Pilates and very quickly emerged that that life in my mind was not going to be the life that we were going to have. And part of that is grieving the baby that you thought you were going to have and accepting the new path that you're on. But we didn't know how long we had. So after she was born and then was 
given the initial Miller-Dieker syndrome diagnosis, which is the most severe form of this condition, meant that she would die young. Most children with Miller-Dieker die before the age of two, but they wouldn't commit to a time frame. So you'd get, have one doctor that would say that and then another that would say, oh, but, you know, she might survive till she's 10 or 11 or 12 or 15 or, so you know, they... hugely ranging ages and terrifying as well because we didn't know what her life would be like and we desperately didn't want our child to live a really a life of pain and, and hardship. So it was really hard to come to terms with that and very uncertain and hard to map out because in one sense it wasn't like we knew we only had 10 months so we could do we'd, we'd make the most of every month or have a birthday on every month or anything like that but we we realized that we just had to live in the moment because we were absolutely parenting into the unknown and we were parenting without a future and all of that stuff around planning for your child to learn the piano and that they're going to do ballet lessons. All of that stuff went out the window. So, you know, you know you're not going to see a child into a career, but you've somehow got to accept that you're going to see your child into an early grave. And it's horrendous. And, and yeah, very, very depressing and sad. But in that everyday moment of what we were living, we made our world small and there was a beautiful simplicity in that very much living for each day and just an overwhelming love that I don't think I would ever have been able to experience if we hadn't gone through that love for Lily and love for each other and that we were living this and going through this together. It was this kind of profound experience, I think, of something that's really shaped through helplessness and grief but just searing love for each other. That's beautiful. And do you feel like as well it brought you and your husband closer together? I mean, it's such a an enormous thing to go through in a relationship mm. as well. And I just, yeah, I'm in awe of how you've got a positive spin on what's happened as well. I just think you're incredible. Um, it definitely did. And I, I think for couples it can go either way. And we, we heard all these terrible statistics about um, how parents with Sick children or disabled children are more likely to divorce, or parents who endure the death of a child are more likely to divorce. And I think the pressure I, that it puts on the relationships as well, like you're not, mm, <laughs> not prepared for that. Yeah, and I, I think from the very, very beginning, it brought us closer together, like that the love that we felt for each other. We wanted to save each other, and we wanted to save Lily, and we just couldn't. It was like all three of us were rushing headlong into a brick wall, and there was nothing we could do to stop it. But our instinct was to protect each other rather than ourselves if if that makes sense so definitely brought us closer together and then after Lily died we made a conscious effort to work hard on on our relationship to ensure that we were together in our grief and being very open and communicative about how we were feeling and we saw a psychologist together and we did all of that and we don't have the perfect relationship. We're just a normal couple. But I think there's a really important communication piece that we learned through that experience. I think that's so important to be together in your grief as well because mm. I think it can eat you up, especially in those first months and mm. when you're trying to come to terms with what's happened. So being in it together and kind of recognising that you needed to face it together and it was something that you were both going through hand in hand, I think is is an amazing way to to approach it. 
So you mentioned that you were starting to sort of grieve Lily before she'd even died. What was mm. what was that grief like, I guess, compared to after she had died? Well, I think for us that really intense grief and shock, you know, the shock that happens when someone dies, yeah. that shock happened when we got that diagnosis at 37 weeks. Mm. And it was, you know, I'm really glad we made the decision to wait for her to come naturally because even though it was the worst time of my life, we had those weeks to go through that intense grief and shock and horror. It was just all of that crazy emotions. I think it's about six weeks on average. I know everyone's grieving is so yeah. different, but that traumatic, <clears throat> shocking yeah. grief, I think, is quite normal to last around six weeks, I think. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. And so we kind of had that time before she was born. And I am now looking back on it really grateful that we had that time because once she was born, there wasn't time for it. There was time for just living with a newborn, which is hard enough on its own. You know, I, I definitely was still very sad. I, I remember just holding this baby, this beautiful, perfect baby in my arms and I'd just cry felt like I'd cry for hours because I knew that she wasn't going to get to do all these things that I wanted her to do that that, I, that any parent would want their child to experience. But because she was here, those moments couldn't be all the time. We had to be, we had to have that shit together for her. Mm. So, so those moments would happen, but then, you know, we had to be on and we had to be together and we had to work out what, what our plans were and how we were going to make the most of this time that we had with her. I know you've spoken quite openly before about fighting to give Lily as normal life as you possibly could. What did those 10 months look like in terms of, you know, trying to make the most of your time you had with her? Mm. So we we decided, really we decided in that early time when we, when we made the choice that we wanted her to come naturally, I think we then realised we wanted her life to be as least medicalised as it could be. And I acknowledge that this is going to be different for every family, but for us, we knew we couldn't cure her and so we decided that we didn't want her to have to live in a bubble and rather if her time would be short, it would be short and as good as it could be. So we were so glad that COVID wasn't around then. We were able to travel with her to see family in Tasmania and our beautiful friends in Sydney. She was a bit of a Bondi baby. She, she liked <laughs> North Bondi fish was one of her favourite haunts. Very fancy. Um, <laughs> very, very trendy girl. And she had her first swim up in Noosa. We spent time in Queensland. And we even took her to New Zealand. She had a little passport and we oh. went over to see Will's family in New Zealand. She came to all the wineries with us. She did a lot in 10 months. And we didn't go to hospital. She went to hospital once for a day. So part of her life being as normal as possible for us was working with our medical team to make that happen and to have a plan that meant where possible and where it was safe and good for her, we would keep her out of hospital. And so the one day she went to hospital was when she started to have seizures and we spent the day in the emergency department. And then we were able to take her home that night and the hospital worked with us to to do this program called Hospital in the Home where they would send a nurse to the house every day to monitor for a while to make sure the meds were working and yeah it was it was so good we passionately believe that all children are happier in a home setting and if you can make that happen in a way that's safe and 
and you can feel confident and empowered to do that, that it's going to be better for everyone. So yeah, that's what we did. It sounds like you had a really good support network around you as well. I think we coped really well and I look back on it now and sometimes I think we coped almost too well so there could have been more support that was offered but people just thought oh they've really got it together and in a way I didn't want their support but I look back now on some of the things we struggled through particularly towards the end and I remember the hospital room like we could help talking about things like a night nurse but it was all a bit vague and we just kept struggling through and doing it ourselves but I look back now and I have anxiety just thinking about how we did it but we did have beautiful support from our family who don't live here but they they would all fly in at different points whenever we needed them so we, we did have amazing family support. We had a great paediatrician as well who was incredible so we I think worked hard to create the team we wanted as well if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. What was your experience like with the paediatric palliative care? I think, you know, when anyone thinks of the word palliative, you think death and it gets a bad rap because it is associated with dying. But we learned that palliative care in the paediatric setting is about making the most of the time that you have. And it isn't just about death and children that are actually involved in palliative care from an earlier start point who may have you know an incurable illness palliative condition often you know they they might even live longer I think there's some research which shows sometimes they actually live longer in that setting than than others where they're just fighting and there's a beautiful documentary that was created and it was run in the New York Times recently about pediatric palliative care and a doctor who who talks about that she talks about how children often do better in it so we learned that palliative care was about you know making the most of that time and for us it was things like learning about music therapy and helping facilitate as least medicalised kind of experience for us. So it helped us in containing, kind of getting swept up in the system, I guess. Trying to give them that really good quality of life while they are alive Mm, as well. That's right. That's right. The focus was on that and kind of getting, yeah, making the most out of each day, making it as good as it possibly could be. It sounds like you did a bloody good job of that, I must say. You guys did Thank a really you. good job in what would have been a really tough situation. Yeah, and I and I think for everyone it's really easy to look back in hindsight and think, oh, I should have done this or I should have done it that way. And one of the hardest things about when somebody has died is that you can't change it. Like you can't call them up and say, oh, I was wrong when I said X, Y, Z, we should do it this way because it's over. And so you can talk to yourself thinking, why didn't I say this to them or why didn't I do that? I talk to myself because Lily never got to taste ice cream but the sensible part of me is like she was a 10 month old baby most 10 month old babies don't have ice cream so Mm. you know you have to just tell yourself we did the best that we could with all of the information that we had at the time and that's that's all anyone can do I totally get that like the guilt I mean I I lost my mum in Mm -hmm. very traumatic way I lost her to suicide but I certainly went to all those places like oh I should have done this or I could have done this or if only I'd had that conversation or but I think that that's quite a universal experience for all types of death I think people do experience Mm. guilt with all loss in some Mm. sense it may not be as extreme as what I had gone through with the suicide in terms of like Mm. blaming myself and everything but I think yeah any type of loss comes with guilt when you love someone you're like oh should I've done it this way or and it's just so final I think that's what's so hard because if they were still here you you could you could call them up and tell them, but you can't do that anymore. 
I think that's the hardest thing. If Lily's yeah. still here, I can feed her up. You know, if I have a bad day with Jasper, I can make up for it the next day. And similarly, if you, you fall out with your own parent or you wish you'd said something to them and you realise that you hadn't, you can do it the next day. But when exactly. they're not here anymore. Exactly. It's so hard. It's so, so it's hard. It's so cruel. Yeah. And yeah. so you do have to find peace in thinking that you did the best you could at the time. And if you'd known, of course, you would have said something. Yeah, absolutely. And during that time, Priyanka, how did you take care of your mental health in a way? Because it must have been so a trying mm. time when you're trying to parent a, a poorly child, but also, you know, making sure that you're that you're okay as well. You're being fed mm. and looked after as well. I don't know. Um, I think we live every day in the moment, and I didn't. Like after Lily died, we did a lot of work on our own mental health and self-care. But during it, I don't really think we did. We had a lot of support, family support, and we were definitely resilient in that way. But I think I was determined that I would be, have it together and just push through. So looking back on it now, we could have been better at supporting our own mental health. I think we just kind of did, did it for each other and we just kept going and we, we, we helped each other. But we could have been better. After Lily died, I yeah, I did a lot of self care and a lot of speaking with the psychologist and also the counsellor from Very Special Kids, which is the hospice that we we used after Lily died. They had a, a room there and a cuddle cot, which I can talk about in a minute. But I did that and then I started to do facials and acupuncture and actually I did do that a bit before she died. It's kind of a bit of a blur as well with anyone you know having a newborn <laughs> that self-care sort mm. of goes out the window doesn't mm. it like there's no time for yourself anymore that's right yeah so I think it was like mum life occasionally I did I started to have facials and then I started that towards as she got sicker and then I kept doing that afterwards like I think little things like that for your own self-care are so important and now it's just a part of who I am I have a facial every month I do acupuncture usually I get massages regularly and like spend lots of money on things. Good <laughs> on you. Go, girl. <laughs> I fully like, support all of these things. <laughs> yeah, like you need to do it, I yeah. think. And that was my self-care. And Will's self-care was similarly like doing some of those things, massages and things, but also recognising when he needed to go to the pub and just have a beer with some mates or just get that kind of sky time was really good for his soul as well. So. As time has gone on, I mean, I this has become a part of my life, part of Will's life too. But kind of the mission for me is to kind of share Lily's story and to talk about it as I do on Instagram. Whereas Will talks to Lily, like he'll say good night to, we still say good night to her every day and every, you know, good morning and good night. And he, Lily's ashes are in our bedroom, so she's very much a part of our everyday life. But my approach is probably much more public than his, so it's making space for that and accepting that his way of grieving as we go on is different to mine. And for someone who may be going through a similar situation, what was the support that you had after Lily had passed away? Can you talk us through what that support looked like? So when Lily died, Lily died at home and she died basically in our arms at home and it was as peaceful as it could be. She had one big seizure after a bad, bad day and it had been a downhill for couple of weeks and she yeah she died at home so that night she stayed at home with us and the next day we arranged with 
a children's hospice in Victoria called Very Special Kids who we were connected with. It's a paediatric palliative care. Most children now won't grow old and we didn't, they, they do respite and things like that. We didn't use them while she was alive because we wanted, you know, to have Lily at home with us. But after she died, we were able to take her there and they have a special kind of bereavement space and a cot called a cuddle cot, which is a cold, it's a cot that's got a cooling system in it. And it just means that rather than seeing the child taken off to a morgue or, I don't I don't know, a funeral parlour or something, she was able to go into this beautiful cot, it's like a normal bed, a normal baby cot, and stay in this beautiful room and, until her funeral. So we could see her every day. They had a space there for us if we wanted to stay there. So people who live further away could just stay in there's a room next door we're lucky enough to live very close to very special kids so we didn't feel we needed to stay but we could just pop in at any moment and we actually had she died on Saturday and the funeral wasn't till the Friday so we we were waiting for family to fly in from all over the world and we had those few days that I think were just so important in that grieving process because we were able to say goodbye, to sing her songs to her and to make sure she had all her little bits and pieces and the parents, could, grandparents could come and say goodbye and, and everyone who loved her got to see her before she was cremated and it wasn't scary or awful at all. It was really, she was beautiful and perfect still and I think pre pre-losing my own child, the thought of, you know, even having a child in your house after they died for an, that night would be weird for some people, but actually we were able to bath her and care for her until, you know, it was time for her to go. And I think having that time is really, really critical in the grieving process. And you hear of mothers who 10, 20 years ago, their children were just taken away if they were born, you know, if they were born still, they wouldn't even get to see them. And That's horrific. That's like, yeah. horrendous. So I think we were very, very lucky to go through that and we were also connected then with a, a counsellor who we'd met before and at the same time we also got a, a referral to a psychologist so we did that together and then we just left the country after the funeral we we went to Japan just to get away. You need that time don't you just to catch your breath and just get away and take a minute to yeah. yourselves after such a huge experience. Yeah and it was awful like coming back to an empty house with baby things was just so wrong. So yeah, we went to Japan and we just processed everything that was happening. And then I found out I was pregnant again. All just kind of happened at once. Wow. And this is with um, Jasper. Yeah. So we kind of had had this plan in our minds that we wanted to be Lily a sibling because she loved being around our friends' children. And so we thought she was going to be with us for at least another year. Like at a minimum, they'd said two years. So we thought, okay, we'll try and have a baby. I look back on that now and I'm like, what? what? That would have been really hard. What was uh, I thinking? <laughs> yeah, like, okay. Yeah. But, you know, also having lost the fallopian tube, I assumed it would be hard again, so I didn't think we would get pregnant. But it turned out there was a brief time when I was pregnant with Jasper and Lily was still alive. So that was her parting gift to yeah, us. Yeah, that's really special. That's lovely. Yeah, and it was really hard to be pregnant 
whilst grieving the loss of the child and to go through a pregnancy so soon after and having had such a catastrophic time the first time around, it was like like running a marathon, I think, every day. How (laughs) quickly was it that you found out? Like how soon after losing Lily did you find out you were pregnant? Like in that first couple of weeks. Wow. Wow. It was a real really difficult time and we had to I had to basically ignore it to start off with until I just couldn't couldn't go there and I had to you know get through all these hurdles again first is it an ectopic pregnancy then is this going to happen again and and what testing can we do and what can we make sure that we we have done all the tests on ourselves and it was a very very I guess traumatic pregnancy like it was it was very stressful we did lots of extra testing but there was no teeth that came until he was in my arms um, because I just didn't know. We'd had the worst happen at the end of a pregnancy before. So, yeah, it was very stressful. It must have been so difficult for you as well, Priyanka, because you're grieving, but then also it's, you're, you know, you let them, there must have been joy because mm. you were pregnant and, and bringing another life into the world, but then also trying to deal and cope with the loss of Lily and, and, and grieving her. It would have been very confusing, yeah. I, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. A very confusing yeah. time. How did you navigate almost two ends of the spectrum, really? Yeah. I think I couldn't be I couldn't be happy about being pregnant because I didn't believe that I would get a baby. So I couldn't be excited. I wasn't excited. I was just I just lived in fear and dread. Yeah. So it wasn't when people say that they lost their pregnancies, I'm like, I've never experienced that really, except for that brief time before Lily's diagnosis where everything was normal. And so Jasper's pregnancy, I did not believe that I would get to bring a child home. So whilst there was like a flicker of hope that came when we got the all clear from the extra tests that we did, there was always a doubt in my mind that he would be here and it wasn't until they put him in my arms and I remember just like there was this person screaming like is he breathing is he breathing and it was me screaming um and I remember my doctor being like yes he is breathing he is alive he's yours and putting him in my arms and then I was able to kind of breathe for the first time in 10 months or whatever it was so yeah and what did I do to cope during that time I wasn't allowed to drink alcohol, obviously. <laughs> that <laughs> helps. Take any Valium. So I I read a lot of tracky books. I started the Lily Calvert Foundation. We did our first fundraiser. I did a lot. I slept a lot. I watched lots of Harry Potter. That's a my magic toolkit recommendation. Like if you, there's only so much grieving you can do each day, and after a while, I think as you would both know, it physically hurts. Like you yeah. can't cry anymore, and your eyes hurt, and your nose hurts and you just get sick of it. You've so got to give having, yourself some time off, don't you? You have to. And you have to have something. So trashy books or Harry Potter. Something um, that takes like, you away into a bit of a fantasy land. That's right, yeah. Something that completely takes you away um, and the massages and the facials and things continue. And then, yeah, I went back to work halfway through, just three days a week. I, I gave myself three days a week so I could be a mess on the, the other two and then just concentrate on work for those three. And then he was here and wasn't like happily ever after. We still, you know, we still have a missing piece and we always will and we just accept that that's our life now. And how do you talk to Jasper about Lily? 
I know you mentioned that, you know, your husband says good morning and good night to Lily every day. And do you have little rituals or routines that you have with Jasper to kind of remind, not remind him of, of Lily, but to keep Lily's memory alive? Yeah, and we have always been very open about Lily. So the challenge, I think, of parenting one child that's not here and parenting one that is, is how to balance that out. And so he knows that Lily is his sister, that she's a part of this family and that she's not here. I don't think he understands, like, he knows that on, on our list of drawers are all Lily's things. He's obviously too little to understand that her ashes are there. But we've got, you know, books about Lily that we read together, a Christmas book, and there's a book that's called The Story of Lily Calvert. And her photos are everywhere and he's got some of her toys and as he grows, I guess he'll have more questions and I think that is like a really hard thing to figure out. But he he will grow up knowing her. We don't want him to ever feel like he has to live in her shadow or like he can't live up to the expectation of her, but we want him to grow up loving her. And I heard him say to his little friend the other day who they were playing with some cars and one of them is a pink car that is Lily's. So for Lily's birthday, she always gets presents and we have a party usually and we, we celebrate those moments. And I heard him say, hey, that's my sister's car. Oh, and that's so that beautiful. Just, yeah, like it kind of breaks my heart, but it also, I'm like, yes. And it was Lily's fourth birthday this year. And so he said to me. it was just nearly just over a week ago. Yeah. And we couldn't do, usually we would have a party, we couldn't do that. So I organized some little party boxes and we dropped them up at, at our friends who were, you know, who were friends with Lily. And Jasper in the car just said to me, but where is Lily, mummy? And those sorts of things are just so hard because yeah. how do you explain to your child why their sibling isn't here? And how do you balance that without making them fearful that they're going to get sick and die? That'd be a tough um, one. It's really hard and I don't have the perfect answers and I think it'll just be navigating that and speaking with other families and parents as we grow, as he grows and, and figuring it out. But yeah, we acknowledge her. She's part of our life and I think we will always do that. And the older they get, the more inquisitive they get, don't they? So it's just more and more questions and, but why? Yeah. But why? And sadness I've heard from other parents uh. that they go through a grieving period. It's like, why isn't my sister here? And I miss my sister. So I've got all of that to come and I'm not really looking forward to it. But I do really believe that it's so much better for him to know about her and for her not to be a secret. And that's kind of part of our reason behind the foundation as well is that we want him to grow up having a say in that and how the money is directed and where it goes and for it to be something that he can actively get involved in that helps keep her memory alive too. I love that. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the Lily Calvert Foundation. So after Lily died, our friends really wanted to help us and they actually came to us with this idea and said, how about we set up a charitable fund in her name? What do you guys think? And we loved the idea. And so they helped set it up and do all of that, you know, all the structure behind it, which was incredible, the gift to us. And the foundation aims to raise awareness around paediatric palliative care and to support other families who are going through palliative care. We do that by working closely with organisations like Very Special Kids. And Lily loved music. Music therapy was something we did a lot with her and she just absolutely adored it. So 
as time goes on, we have a focus on the music therapy elements of palliative care for children. And this year we launched a program called the Lily Calvert Musical Care Program, which is about incorporating elements of music therapy into medical and clinical settings. So not just in like your one hour of music therapy, but kind of equipping support staff and nurses and carers to use musical techniques in like the hospice, for example. So rather than kind of just having a really quiet space or a clinical setting, introduce music into it and look at ways that that can help children to settle and calm if they're unsettled or to facilitate the nurses giving medicine, for example, play the right playlist and what sort of music can help in those surroundings. So it's the the first program of its kind and we're really excited to see how it goes. Part of the mission of the Lily Calvert Foundation is to try and break the stigma around discussing child loss. Can you explain to us why this is so important? I think very early on I realised how challenging it was to talk about and how odd it was that people didn't talk about it. And then one day, actually Will, when we were back in Tasmania for Christmas, he was having a conversation and we're at the bottle shop loading beer into the car and he started talking to the guy who was working at the bottle store who he knew from, I don't know, years ago when he lived in Tassie. And he was telling him about Lily. And I remember thinking, like, why is he telling this person who is probably going to give him nothing, like, and is cringing inwardly. Yeah, you think, and is it going to make them uncomfortable? Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's telling a story. And this guy just stops and he's like, oh, my God, mate, like, I totally get it. We lost our baby last year. The baby was stillborn and he just opened up and shared his story and I got back and I was like, that was kind of the catalyst for me. And he probably never would have, you know, Mm. he's probably never said that to to any customer Mm. that's come in, but it's a huge part of his life and he's Mm. sort of going about his day. It's probably really refreshing for him to be able to say it out loud because it is a huge part of his life and, your life and it's just yeah and the the more you talk about it I think the more you realize that this has happened to so many people this is exactly what I felt too yeah very much and particularly suicide there there is like I think almost every family has been touched by it in some way Um, but if you don't talk about it you don't know and because there's this unspoken expectation that we should stop talking about our dead people yeah it just perpetuates this cycle of keeping it all all quiet. So I think that's what kind of drove me to be like, right, okay, I'm going to start talking about it yeah. and sharing it. And the amount of people who have then opened up to me when I've spoken about it, whether it's the, you know, the lady that lives over the back fence who lost her baby 40 years ago or the, the mother who I meet in the park and then reveals that she also lost her baby. Like it, it's everywhere. Do people think – if by bringing it up, it's going to remind you that yeah. you lost that person or it's like, oh, I don't want to remind them that their loved yeah. one's dead. It's like chances are we're thinking about it anyway. It's yeah. it's always there. I don't know. Like I just don't know I what it is. people just don't know how to broach the topic. If they haven't experienced it themselves, I think they just don't – they don't want to cause – offense by saying the wrong thing so sometimes they just yeah, don't say, say nothing at all. all whereas I think when you have been through it, actually like you said earlier Priyanka you do want them to say something you know and it doesn't have to be anything profound it can be just acknowledgement yeah yeah just acknowledgement yeah. that's exactly it yeah I think so and I know that the person I was before was definitely a um I won't say anything because I don't want to upset that person 
Whereas now, you know, it's just awkward if you don't say anything. Just mm. say, I am sorry. Yep. Yeah, and I had a conversation recently about, it was around Lily's birthday, so sharing sharing a story with people or organising things, it, all, it always brings it up again. And I'm always reminded how awkward people are because people know us. But if it's a new business or something, if they don't mention it, I won't go back to that business. Like if I share my heart to them and say I want to organize X, Y, and Z for my daughter who's died's birthday and they come back with a clinical response of, oh, it'll cost this much money for a cake, I won't go back to that business. So I think what people, you know, there's that fear of saying the wrong thing but that that need to recognize that not only does it alienate that person but it can actually impact your business. And I shared that thought on Instagram and so many other people came back to me and they're like, yeah, I have never been back to my hairdressers because of the way that they reacted or, you know, never been back to a particular store because of how they reacted. And I think it can have a really big impact, not just on you personally, but on the way that you interact with other people and companies and that sort of thing. I was like, yeah, that's a big one. And in what ways do you think that your loss has shaped you as a person? I feel like my life is forever divided in the person that existed and maybe still exists on another in another universe somewhere, the person that drove to the hospital that day, thirty six weeks pregnant with Will. It's like we were diff we're different people to to who those two people were. Yeah. Um, like life before diagnosis and then yeah. who you are after yeah. the diagnosis. You you're not the same person. You know, that person who was gonna go about back to work and bounce around in my lycra leggings. You're wearing my leggings, don't get me wrong. But, um, that person was probably a bit more selfish and a little bit more, this won't happen to me, and a little bit more shallow than the person I've become. And I really didn't want to, I think part of that grieving process is that I really didn't want to become this person that I am today, but I'm really grateful now. And I know I'm a better person. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make... It, like it's not a silver lining it's not like oh it's all good because you turned into a better person it always sucks and it will never justify what happened but it exists alongside that if that makes sense you're incredible I've got to say I think I just how you have turned your pain into something that is positive for others and helping help other people is just absolutely so admirable and I just think you're just yeah amazing Priyanka <laughs> thank you do you have any tips for people on what to say and the what not to say? The do's and don'ts. Like, tell yeah, us, please. Yeah. The do's. And, is there a you know a do's and don'ts list on this sort of sort of thing? Yeah, actually, I've got a couple of posts that I've shared on my Instagram account around this, and they've always resonated really well. And I think it's that point that you both said before, like just say something. If if someone tells you they've been through a lot, say I am so sorry. Like yeah. that. That is. You know, if you don't know what to say, just say, I'm so sorry. And never start a sentence with at least. Never be like, oh, at least, you know, you can get pregnant or at least your mum lived till she was X age or at least, you know, you've got another child. Just if anything ever starts with at least, banish it. I think that's kind of the worst <laughs> things that you can say. So, yeah, never, never at least and never minimise what that person has been through and yeah, I think it's like a deep breath and say sorry, acknowledge the loss. There are lots of beautiful, thoughtful gifts you can get for people that have been through loss as well. And I, I don't think you should ever underestimate just if you don't if you don't know the person well or you don't know what to do, 
a bunch of flowers is always beautiful or a little care package. And then if you feel awkward, there's so many great things you can send online these days that you don't have to go near somebody's house but, or risk seeing them or, you know, anything like that. But it can just let them know that you're thinking of them. And that point of remembering that grief lasts for longer than two weeks. So I think in the first two weeks, you, that person often gets a lot of support, but it's in the coming weeks and months where you really want someone to just take you for a coffee and go for a walk or to sit in silence with you and to just acknowledge how shitty everything is. That's exactly it, to acknowledge how shitty it is because it is it shit. It is shit. And it's sometimes... It's simple as that. It's shit. You just, you need, sometimes you just need people to say, I'm really sorry you're going through this. It's shit. Yeah. And that can be yeah. that can be it. You know, it doesn't need to be anything other than I feel your pain, I understand what you're going through and I will just yeah. sit with you or be with you and I'm here to support you. Mm. And I think as humans we're often hardwired to try and fix things mm. and that's where it all goes wrong is that we someone's going through something shit but we try and fix it so we start trying to point out silver linings or positives and actually we don't need that. We just need someone to acknowledge that it sucks. And that is the heal. That's the beginning of the healing process because you're being allowed to sit in your grief. Yeah, we've had that chat before and Sal and I have talked about what it means to hold the space for someone and that's it. People come into the space and they want to try and solve your problem or come up with a solution mm-hmm. to how bad you're feeling. But it's like you just sometimes need to sit there and feel exactly what you're feeling without somebody that trying to take it personally or try to fix it it's like whatever you feel just letting it out yeah and and I think sometimes because there's a lot of work done in contemporary society around like positivity and positivity movement and gratitude that people can confuse being allowed to be sad with being negative and you can still be somebody that holds on to hope and has a positive outlook like I as I said before I had optimism bias at the start of this whole journey but I'm a hardwired positive person and I'm sure that helped me but learning that it was okay to be feeling shitty and it it doesn't mean that you're you've got something wrong with you or that you're not positive anymore but that as part of a positive movement is acceptance that sometimes things are bad and that's life. Are there any other resources that you'd recommend for people who have experienced or are going through something similar? If it's a children-related thing, well, I think you should get in touch with your paediatric palliative care hospice if you're in Australia or whatever palliative care service that there is, depending on where you're listening to. So in Sydney, it's Fair Cottage. And, yeah, follow me at The Lily Flower as well. I'm always willing to share and, and kind of point people in different directions. There's a beautiful article that I read that talks about the experience of going through, of losing a child and it's by a woman called Emily Rapp and she wrote a op-ed piece in the New York Times called Notes from a Dragon Mum and I think that's something that sums up this whole experience so that would be something I'd say to have a Google or just come to me and I can point you in the direction of that. Great, we can um, link that in the show notes as well, that's great. And that's probably, I mean there's millions of things but yeah off the top of my head. Those. I've got some really good resources or companies that I work with for beautiful pieces like after a child has died and, and candles that can be like named and books, personalised books and that sort of thing too. So if anyone listening is looking for a gift for a newly bereaved parent or anything like that, yeah, just get in touch and I can help point to those resources too. You're, you're an incredible woman. Can I just say like 
Thank you so much for yeah sharing your story with us. You are yeah. an absolute inspiration and it's been such an honour to be able to talk to you today and I think what you're doing is absolutely wonderful and yeah keep on doing it you're yeah. you're amazing. <clears throat> we need more people like you in the world I think. Absolute pleasure I'll look forward to hearing more and speaking soon and good luck tomorrow I'll look out for the media. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye. What an amazing woman. Absolutely incredible. I'm in awe. So inspiring. I mean, to have gone through that and to be such a positive light force in the world, like she's just incredible. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you've enjoyed listening, please don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you may be listening on. And if you can leave us a rating or review, everything really helps. And if you know someone who might benefit from listening to this podcast, Please spread the word about Good Morning. 